It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brian Kilmeade. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm David Asman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, August 31st, 2023, I'm Mike Emanuel. Virginia was definitely a blue state supporting Democrats statewide until a businessman running for governor snapped the streak in 2021. A big area of focus right now in Virginia is parents matter in the lives of their children. Parents just want to be able to avail themselves of doing what's best for their child as opposed to the failed one-size-fits-all policies that we know really means one-size-fits-none. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. In the most political times, when everyone and everything can feel divided, even those in politics have to put it all aside when a storm puts lives and property in danger. The campaign will come back later, right? And, and you know, any advice to a governor is, this is your disaster. You have to take charge. People are depending on you. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. In previous election cycles, Republicans were big on in-person voting on Election Day. But now there's a shift in places like Virginia and Georgia where there's an active push to convince GOP voters early voting is easy, secure, and necessary. Chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, says it is a critical game time decision. What I say to voters all the time is we can't wait till the fourth quarter to start scoring in the football game. We've got to be scoring all four quarters and that means voting earlier than ever. We're going to protect that vote with lawyers on the ground and poll watchers and poll workers, but we have to do both. Across the country, a red hot issue right now is parents demanding their rights over major decisions being made by their children. In True Blue, New Jersey, Deputy Attorney General James Michael says Schools should respect the privacy of students who may be considering a new gender identity. There will be irreparable harm um, to transgender students if these policies are implemented. Um, once a student is um, outed to their parents, the harm is the harm is done. It's irrevocable. But Brian Mason, a Middletown, New Jersey father of seven, says parents must be respected by the schools. Yeah, they want to keep it a secret in the schools if the if the child decides to go in and change their name and their gender and they don't want to tell the parents it's which obviously is that we have to sign permission slips for them to watch a movie and they're going to turn around and say well if this is going on if they're going to if they're trying to transition we should know that we shouldn't that, that apparently parents are a danger in many states lawmakers are also wrestling with budgetary issues in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears says the focus is on delivering results. We've got $500 billion of a budget surplus that we're trying to get back to Virginians that we're being stopped at every turn. Virginia has supported Democrats in the last four presidential races, making the state look very blue. But in 2021, a political newcomer snapped a 12-year losing streak for Republicans in statewide elections. And now legislators are ironing out a budget deal. Well, first of all, I think we've reached a general framework agreement. I haven't seen all of the particulars, uh, which I look forward to reviewing later this week. Glenn Youngkin is the Republican governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I have called everybody back for a special session next week because I'm confident we can work things out. 
but it includes a billion dollars of incremental tax relief for Virginia families. That brings us to $5 billion over the course of the last 19 months, um, which is just an extraordinary moment for us to recognize whose money it is. Uh, it belongs to the people, not to government. Uh, I think we've done a great job in coming together around addressing uh, learning loss and some support to make sure that Virginia kids can catch back up after the horrific damage done because of the extended school closures. And we're continuing to support law enforcement and behavioral health reform, and uh, both of which are hugely important. So a uh, big framework uh, seems to be in reasonable shape. The details we're going to still have to work through. You've been all over the Commonwealth of Virginia hosting Parents Matter events. I'm curious what you're hearing from mom and dads across Virginia. They've been, they've been, these have been great events uh, all over Virginia. We've done five. And uh, the messages uh, tend to be very consistent, even uh, as we are across different geographies. At the top of the list is the strong desire and demand that parents have the primary role in their kids' lives. And uh, you know, just the clear recognition that the children belong to parents, not to the state. And we have to continue to empower parents and respect that. That's putting parents at the head of the table for decisions in their children's lives. There's a real concern about the role of social media in their children's mm -hmm. lives and the resultant uh, behavioral health and mental health challenges that we're seeing. We have a real crisis uh, among our young people and among all Virginians, and we see it. Uh, and parents want to be more engaged. They do want some help. Gosh, we had a bill last year that would require parent authorization before a minor could open up a social media account and would um, forbid social media companies from harvesting and gathering the data and selling it for minors. And, of course, the progressive left in our Senate blocked it. Uh, I'm going to reintroduce that bill again in January. We're going to get this passed to provide parents some real protection here. And, and then finally, there's a real desire to have multiple pathways uh, for kids, to have parents really exercise choice, both within the school system and outside. Parents know that each child has a different uh, capability. We can provide that with our lab school program in Virginia, with our tax-driven scholarships, and parents just want to be able to avail themselves of doing what's best for their child as opposed to the failed one-size-fits-all policies that we know really means one-size-fits-none. You put in place model policies, basically making sure that parents are in the loop on things involving their children. We've seen in other places around the country where a child goes to school and is starting to change their gender identity, and it's kind of a secret between the school and the child, and the parents are cut out of the loop. What about your model policies, and are you surprised by some pushback in some of the more progressive counties? Well, let me just begin with, with a clear fact that these decisions cannot be made without parents. Uh, and in Virginia, we're going to make sure they're not made without parents. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's at the heart of our effort to protect the dignity and the privacy of every child in Virginia, but also the safety. Uh, and this is all parents and all children. And therefore, our model policies speak straight to it, and they have been uh, reaffirmed by our Attorney General, Jason Meares, uh, that the schools have an obligation to adopt them based on law, that they adopt policies that are consistent with this. And, you know, at the end of the day, these are the same school systems that kept schools closed for an unnecessary extended period of time that really hurt all Virginia's kids. These are the same schools that denied parents the right to decide whether their child was a mask or not, which we immediately 
cleared up and passed through bipartisan legislation to require schools to allow parents to make that decision uh, whether their child wears a mask or not. These are the same schools that fought us when, when we passed legislation that would, that would allow parents to opt out of sexual explicit materials in the classroom and, and demand replacement materials. They've been on the wrong side of every single one of these issues. The progressive schools are on the wrong side of this one, and uh, it's Virginia law, and they have to abide by it. Okay, to campaign stuff, you are a Republican who's come out in favor of early voting. In past election cycles, Republicans seemed more comfortable to have people go to the polls on Election Day. You're saying let's bank the votes early. Explain that. Well, I think it's pretty clear that if we have 45 days in Virginia in order to round up all of our voters, we should take uh, full use of all 45 days. Mm-hmm. Something could happen on the last day of voting where you're a sick child or you could be sick or work could interrupt and you might miss. And so we are pushing hard uh, for Virginians to make a plan to vote early. We're going to get Republicans off the sidelines. I'm also tired of watching Election Day start with us down thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands of votes. The rules are the rules. Let's take full advantage of them. I inherited them. I didn't write them, but I'm going to go ahead and compete to win. And so we launched SecureYourVoteVirginia.com. We're asking people to make a plan to vote early. Get an absentee ballot. If you may not be here, make a plan to vote early. Bank your vote so that we, in fact, can win. Um, This is a really clear opportunity for us to compete. And uh, we're going to compete hard in Virginia. We have huge elections this year. Our entire legislature is up, our House and our Senate. We need to hold our majority in our House and flip our Senate. And I think Virginians are willing to support us on, on this progress that we've made with great conservative common sense governance. And this is a chance for us to, to translate that to, to more elected officials and particularly flipping our Senate to go with the control we have in our House. Big year for us. We're going we're gonna to secure your vote, Virginia.com, by getting Virginia Republicans out and electing Republican candidates. What about these elections this year in the Commonwealth of Virginia? What would it mean to your agenda if you were to able to basically turn the Commonwealth red? Well, I, I think this, is the, this represents the largest uh, election in America uh, this year. Why? Because just 24 months ago, Virginia was completely controlled by Democrats. All, state, all statewide offices, uh, in addition to Democrat control in our House and our Senate. And in a short 24 months, uh, having swept uh, the statewide offices in 2021 and flipped our house. Now's our chance to, to finish the work and, and flip our Senate. Uh, and this is a huge moment for us to, to really demonstrate that liberal left policies that had really uh, brought Virginia to the brink and it all of a sudden changed Virginia's opportunities and future to the point where we had more people moving away from Virginia than moving to Virginia uh, can, can fundamentally shift. And it's not just Republicans versus Democrats. It's people coming together and truly recognizing that common sense, conservative leadership, policies that empower people in their own lives, that open up opportunities that recognize it's your money, not the state's. Uh, these, these are basic truths that work. And we've seen Virginia go from near the bottom of the pack in job growth when we came in to number four in the country in job growth. We've seen all of a sudden the, the, the tide turn and more people are moving here than moving away. We're empowering parents to take back control of their children's lives. We're back in the blue, and let's be serious. At the end of the day, if, you wanna, if we want to bring crime down, we need more cops, and to have more cops, we've got to back them. This is really straightforward. So 
This election is hugely important for us to demonstrate not only to Virginia, but to the nation that we can do this. And common sense conservative policies are at the heart. And they're not just Republicans, but it's independents and a lot of Democrats that support us. Governor, a lot of folks looking at your election in Virginia and the way you've governed are interested in your political future, whether it be 2024, 2028. Where are you on your thought process, sir? First, I'm humbled. I'm humbled by the fact that uh, people will, would include my name in that circumstances. You know, listen, Mike, 40 years ago, I was washing dishes and taking out trash as a kid in, in Virginia Beach because I needed a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be in a position today where I'm um, serving all Virginians and people are noticing that what we're doing is working and it's founded on common sense, it's founded on conservative principles, and it works, uh, that's hugely encouraging. And so this year we are hugely focused on Virginia. As I said, these elections, I believe, are the most important elections in the nation to just demonstrate the fact that what we're doing works and people should have hope that we can, in fact, chart a better, better future. Uh, and that is where my heart and my, my mind are, and that's why we're so focused on great candidates that we got through our primaries. We're so focused on making sure that the message is clear on what we're going to do and that we deliver. And at the end of the day, results matter. And I think that's going to carry us through these elections this fall. And as I said, I am humbled that folks are paying attention to what we're doing. I am pleased that people are excited by what we're doing, and we want to continue to do it. I'll let you go in a second, sir, but are you praying about it, thinking about your future? Well, I I pray about our Commonwealth's future every morning. Uh, I start out every day uh, in my own quiet time, and I find myself constantly returning to my favorite Psalm 121, which is I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Uh, as, a, as an outsider who came into this job with, with, I think, a real depth of business experience, but not a lot of political experience, I have been so encouraged by the immediate impact that we can have by running government better, by the immediate impact we can have by opening up jobs and employment, by the immediate impact we can have for standing up for the blue, the immediate impact we can have simply by doing the things that we promised we would do. And so, yeah, I, I pray about it every morning, and, uh, and I'm very encouraged by the fact that Virginians are coming together in a way they haven't in a very long time around what we're doing, and I'm thankful for it. The governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, thank you so much for your time. Have an awesome day, sir. Yeah, Mike, God bless you. Thanks for your time. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Tommy Laren with your Fox News commentary coming up. Tornado watches, heavy storm surge, roads flooded with torrential rain, Florida's Big Bend region received the greatest winds and storm surge as Hurricane Idalia made landfall in Keaton Beach Wednesday morning. A few hours later, Fox correspondent Grady Trimble was standing in a flooded roadway along the Steenhatchee River. This dock appears to have been lifted from the river and pushed over here until it settled. We saw a massive metal structure of some kind 
floating down the river that then got lodged against some other building along the bank of the Steenhatchee River. Homes and businesses have been damaged, power outages throughout the hardest hit areas. Florida's emergency management director Kevin Guthrie told reporters as the storm moved out of state. We have a lot of people that have called 911 saying I'm I'm entrapped in my house, I'm okay, but I need help. And folks across Georgia and South Carolina and a part of North Carolina had to deal with the rest of Adelia and heavy rains. Now, ahead of the storm, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is also running for president, tried to reassure people that they were prepared for the worst as they urged people to evacuate. Uh, we have eight urban search and rescue teams staged, ready to go. 33 ambulance strike teams, 5,500 National Guardsmen. Uh, we also have the Coast Guard on standby. So as people deal with the aftermath, no official wants to be blamed for failing the people at the local, state, or federal level. Monday, President Biden and Governor DeSantis spoke, and the president signed an emergency declaration for the state. Hours after the storm made landfall, President Biden reminded people he'd been talking to the governor well ahead of the storm. We surged personnel to Florida to help the state move people quickly to safety and out of a danger zone and to help the governor and his team to the greatest degree possible in advance, in advance of the hurricane's arrival. He said he had the head of FEMA head to Florida to meet with Governor DeSantis today. Typically what you see in major landfalling hurricanes is that storm surge causes the most amount of damage. Brock Long is the former head of FEMA during the Trump years and is now executive chairman of Haggerty Consulting. And, and often the most, it is the, 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 the greatest hazard that causes uh, life safety issues, right? It's the reason that we ask, issue the evacuations. Luckily, where this storm went in, it was some of the least populated areas of the Florida coast, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to see tremendous amount of damage as a result of 16 feet of water. And then on top of that, you have three to six feet of waves breaking on top of that storm surge. So there will be structures that have been completely wiped out along the coastline and back in the inland waterways and marsh areas, uh, which will be total losses. But I'm actually really concerned about manufactured homes and, and trailer homes are just not built to a standard to be able to withstand this type of wind intensity. Mm. What about that? Because I think a lot of us think of access to clean water if everything's been flooded out or if you've been in one of those manufactured homes and you're trapped and you call 911 and you eventually get rescued. What happens next to you? Do you go to a shelter? Do you try and find a family member? It seems is, is there is there organization? Yeah. So typically those who stick around and experience storm surge don't live to tell about it. That's that's mm -hmm. the tough part about storm surge. Storm surge is the reason, the primary reason why we ask people to evacuate. It's not the wind intensity necessarily. Now, while wind intensity defines these storms, the higher the intensity, the greater the storm surge typically. And that's what causes all of the damage. But again, primarily you're going to see wind impacts on public infrastructure, power lines down, um, you know, homes, roofs, um, damage, those types of things. Now, when it comes to the response, Jessica, it's a team sport, right? So I've always said that disaster response and recovery is locally executed, state managed and federally supported. So hmm. typically people think that FEMA is in charge and that's not really the case. You know, the governors of states that are being impacted by disasters typically lead the command and control and provide FEMA where 
they're experiencing gaps or shortfalls in their ability to respond and recover. And that's where FEMA is, you know, they stage, they pre-stage teams, equipment, commodities, you know, you name it outside of where the storm is going to impact, but not too far to where they can't get in very quickly after the storm to augment the local and state response capability. And that's what's going to happen. This particular storm did move pretty quickly for a a Gulf Coast hurricane. And I I wonder, because Governor DeSantis noted that too, and noted that it it made landfall in a a less populated area of Florida. I wonder, (laughs) um, especially, uh, this is a great question for you as former FEMA administrator, is luck as, as important as having that highly coordinated response? The Tampa Bay area has always been considered by FEMA uh, a catastrophic planning area, which means it's incredibly vulnerable. And the citizens that reside in Tampa and Tampa Bay need to take note that this storm went well north of them and made landfall, but still brought six feet of storm surge in some of the back bay and inland areas up to Tampa Bay. Had that storm gone in just to the south, uh, you know, or just, you know, right around Tampa Bay, and you saw maximum radius winds pump water right into Tampa Bay, it would have been absolutely a devastating storm and we would be talking about a different dire situation, you know. And, um, you know, when it comes to the citizens, what we always say is, you know, insurance is the first line of defense. And I know there's big debates in California and Florida about insurance industry pulling out. But the last place that citizens in the United States need to pull back funding is insurance coverage. Hmm. You know, if you lose your home and you're uninsured or underinsured, that's when you will never recover from a financial standpoint. Um, it will be devastating. And there's studies that would suggest that your credit spirals out of control for the next 10 years as a result of that. Right. You know, I, I do think that we have to have we've got to have a serious conversation in this country about how we incentivize stronger building codes, land use planning, um, Mm -hmm. the use of both reinsurance for infrastructure, but then also how do we get major insurance players back to the table in communities to help out citizens? Because it is the first line of defense and really the only thing that they have when all is lost. Brock, tell me about planning, because, you know, you look at like the California wildfires um, for years after people have been killed. You look at maybe a lack of pre-disaster planning and that turns into, well, you know, let's shut off the electricity the next time there's a wind driven fire. We're talking about Maui right now. Right. And there are already lawsuits against the electrical company there. It seems really often kind of to your point that we're learning an awful lot after the fact, about the response after the fact and incident after incident. Yeah. And listen, I'm not an expert on what exactly happened in Maui by any means. And I I don't, you know, have the right to comment on what actions were taken or not. But if you want to talk about the power industry has got to work with Congress as well as local communities on creating larger setbacks for power lines. Correct. Mm. You know, so when trees do fall, they're not impacting power lines. And, you know, a lot of times citizens get upset when power companies come and trim trees, for example. You know, and all of this is being done to mitigate future disasters. And, you know, shutting off the power to prevent wildfires may sound like the right thing to do. And in some cases could be. But when you do that, you're also impacting public health infrastructure or other things, the other infrastructure that has to be working. 
And in some cases, like Maui, as I understand, for example, the the water system is electrified. It needs power to be able to operate. You have to have you know power to operate the water systems. But the thing that that emergency managers and FEMA, you know, really doesn't have any control. It's not the Federal Electricity Management Agency, even though we were right. put in charge of rebuilding a power grid in Puerto Rico, which makes no sense. <laughs> you know, the, the the bottom line with that is is that you know people. Um, do not want power to be rebuilt in a manner that it will be mitigated uh, for the next event because they want the lights on right now. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you you can't have your cake and eat it too. Brock, you were a FEMA director during a, I mean, I I think it's fair to say a highly political time. All times really feel political these days. (laughs) But we're watching a governor run for president who then has to go back and be governor. He has got to be the first responder in chief, right, of his state. I guess in hindsight, now that you have the luxury of hindsight, what what is the best way to deal with politics when people who are dealing with flood damage to their homes or even worse, just don't want to hear about politics? Well, if I could wave my wand and reinvent FEMA, first of all, I would make it a politically neutral agency, you know, that is not at the whim of who's the president of the United States. Um, you know, Governor DeSantis is doing the right thing. He is the chief executive of Florida, regardless of a campaign, and he is you know, obviously a take charge governor. Uh, I, I was fortunate to work with him on the back end of my time in 2019. He's a take charge governor and he's doing the right thing by leading his state, you know, when lives are in danger and uh, the campaign will come back later. Right. And, and you know, any advice to a governor is this is your disaster. You have to take charge. People are depending on you. And, you know, governors, strong governors in charge, working very closely with, you know, FEMA is what it takes to get through these things. And, you can't have finger pointing um, and, bl- and and blame. You know, you've got to be able to work in a unified manner to help people overcome these disasters and help communities rebuild. And and I've always said, hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes, whatever it may be, they don't they don't recognize uh, Republicans and Democrats. And Jessica, I'll tell you one other big thing that's really happening yeah. right now is this argument over the disaster relief fund. I yeah. just heard some questions about that in the White House um, briefing yeah. about, um, and Chris Wall was saying like stop it. We're, we, we will still be able to respond to emergencies. But every reporter was like, yeah, but are you going to have the funding? Yeah. So so what's happening, you know, with the disaster relief fund is one, Congress has got to, you know, listen to FEMA's request for more funding and get it done. Because what, what FEMA has got to do right now is implement what's called immediate needs funding, where they can only spend money on life-saving and life-sustaining activities. But what people don't realize is, is that FEMA is incredibly busy. It's not just the Maui wildfire or the, you know, the current Hurricane Adalia, right? They have currently right now 23 joint field offices up and operating across this country, supporting 75 different open disasters. Okay. So a lot of the disasters and disaster declarations that take place, you know, don't make major news, right? But when they move to immediate needs funding, they cannot put money out to finish the recovery of communities that were impacted maybe last year, the year before, or, or three or four years ago. And so it's really important for Congress to not let the DRF lapse or run out of money and put the tools back in the FEMA administrator's toolbox that they need to get the job done. What are you saying? Funding needs to not be on an annual basis. It needs to be sort of in perpetuity and you just have access to it and let it grow. Well, you know, what I'm saying is, is that the disaster relief fund, when it gets to critically low levels, needs to be at the top of Congress's attention 
and okay. Congress okay. needs to approve funding. Um, you know, the DRF is should not be a political leverage either. Um, you know, this is money to help people respond and recover from disasters. You know, you can't leverage other spending priorities outside of the DRF with this funding supplemental request. Brock Long of the Haggerty Consulting Group and former FEMA administrator, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. I appreciate it. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tommy Laren. What's on your mind? Flying these days sucks. Delays, cancellations, oh, and the threat of airline collisions are on the rise. Comforting, right? The New York Times did an investigation that found airplanes are nearly colliding multiple times a week. In fact, there have been at least 46 of these close calls in the last month alone nationwide. Why, you ask? Shortages and errors with air traffic control. Just a couple weeks ago, two planes nearly collided over the Phoenix airport, and the cause? Human error. The FAA is well aware of the problem, but officials say a lack of air traffic controllers is causing the takeoff and landing mayhem. And that issue isn't likely to be resolved anytime soon, folks, because it takes about two years to train for the position, and that's if we have any candidates that want to sign up for the job. To make matters worse down the road, there's been rumors that forced airline masking might be on the horizon. Travel is about to get a whole lot worse, my friends, but at least gas is cheap, right? Wrong. I'm Tommy Laren. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.